As we talk about giving our time and talents and finances on this Stewardship Sunday, ultimately what we are talking about are the ways we give ourselves to Jesus as his disciples. Stewardship is discipleship. It's really just what discipleship looks like when the rubber meets the road. As a disciple of Jesus, what is it going to look like for me to give my life to him? There are different ways we do this. Each of us has been given a different gift according to the grace given to us, says Paul. Insight, prophetic insight, service, teaching, encouraging, giving generously, leading diligently, cheerful compassion. That list is a little short. I don't see cooking or baking anywhere on that list. Paul must not have been a Presbyterian. We each have different gifts, different ways of giving of ourselves. Yet through them all, we are all called to let love be genuine and not to be overcome by evil. Love is how good overcomes evil. There are different ways we join in the movement of love, different roles we each play in the work of good overcoming evil, but ultimately we're all serving the same cause with our different gifts. We're each different members of one body in Christ, all part of the one mission of Jesus in the world to bring God's love to all places and all people. God's great movement of love is wide and deep, what gift do you bring in the service of love? What role in that great movement have you been called to play with your life? And what role will we play as church? We call big, juicy questions like those questions of discernment. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in our reading from Romans. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God. Discernment is a tricky thing. I consulted the all-knowing Wikipedia for a starting definition of discernment. According to Wikipedia, discernment is, quote, the ability to obtain sharp perceptions or to judge well. Discernment involves going past the mere perception of something and making nuanced judgments about its properties or qualities. And what I want to draw your attention to in this definition is that quality of sharpness of perception, even of going beyond perception and seeing into the deep nature of things. I remember the first time I put on a pair of glasses, prescription glasses, and I looked at a tree was surprised to find there are individual leaves up there. It's not just a green blob like the ones I used to draw with crayons. The Wikipedia definition of discernment seems to involve that kind of clarity of sight. But let me ask you this. Do you find clarity of sight to be a good description of discipleship? Honestly, when was the last time being a disciple of Jesus led you to think, hmm, yep, I have all the information I need for this? No unanswered questions here, just clear blue skies, not a cloud in sight. Sometimes, maybe, 
we get the grace of moments of clarity, but for so many other moments, for whole seasons of life, maybe even for much of our lives, the forecast is decidedly less clear, more cloudy. Look at what Jesus tells his disciples about what life following him is going to be like. They're admiring the temple, and he says, none of this is going to last. Not one stone will be left upon another. Now, he's telling his disciples that the Jerusalem temple is going to be destroyed by the Romans. And the temple was the anchor of their worldview. It's what assured the disciples that God was present in their world and that they were right with God. You pull down the temple, and you break the point of focus that holds their whole world together. And this is exactly what he says to them. Your world is going to be in absolute turmoil. You will not be able to find solid ground to stand on. There will be earthquakes, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, division breaking families apart. It's the feeling of watching a world meander its way close to a cliff where chaos looms beneath. Utter uncertainty encircling us. As we get closer to Thanksgiving dinner, and the likelihood of many of us sitting down to a meal with family members who have very different political beliefs, I find the words of Jesus here fitting, you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters who voted the other way, and this will give you an opportunity to testify. Make up your minds not to prepare your defense, for I will give you the words that no one can contradict. <laughs> In seriousness, no. What strikes me about this picture that Jesus gives us about discipleship is that we will face times when good does not look like it's going to overcome evil, when love does not look like it's going to win, when, in short, it's hard to see, hard to discern what God is doing in this world and what our part in it is supposed to be. And in those places of uncertainty and chaos, those cloudy places, Jesus tells us he will give us what we need to bring us through. When it comes to discerning how we're to give our lives to Jesus as his disciples, how we're to be stewards with our lives, with all that God has given us, I am prepared to say two things. First, in all likelihood, it's not going to be a clear path, but a path that will require trusting in God to lead us through and second, if there are marks, any marks that tell us we're on the right path, the only marks I feel confident to say we can trust are the marks of love, the marks of the cross. So last week I was at Luther Ridge Conference Center just outside Asheville, North Carolina for continuing education. Those mountains seem to be holy ground for just about every denomination under the sun. We've all got our own retreats and camps out there. We Presbyterians have Montreat, our Holston camp. The Baptists have Ridgecrest, and Lutherans have Luther Ridge. I did find some Presbyterians, and we flocked to each other for solidarity. But I think the vast majority of the folks there were Episcopalians, and a kind group of them took me in and looked after me while I was there. What first drew me to register for this event was the fact that Barbara Brown Taylor was going to be one of the speakers. If you don't know her work, 
I encourage you to find at least one of her sermons online or pick up just about any book she's written. She is marvelous. If you do know her story, you know she was an Episcopal priest for 20 years. Now, it turns out those kind Episcopalians who had taken me in and were looking after me, it turns out they knew her. So I think it was Friday night that I'm sitting down to dinner with my new friends, and who sits down next to me but Barbara Brown Taylor. So I, I had dinner with Barbara Brown Taylor. <laughs> As she takes her seat, my new Episcopal priest friend whispers loudly into her ear, he's a Presbyterian. See if you can convert him. To which she says, while still making eye contact with me, well, I'm not going to do that. And friends, I'm glad she didn't try. <laughs> Anyhow, over the course of the weekend, she was reflecting on the concept of discernment, using as a backdrop the wilderness experience of the Israelites. The time in the wilderness is often imagined as a time of trial, time of testing and wandering, a spiritual process of transformation that brings about a deeper reliance on God's leading. In short, it's a time of discernment. And what Barbara, I call her Barbara now. <laughs> we, we've had dinner. What Barbara was wondering about was the significance of how God appeared to the people to lead them through the wilderness. God appeared in the form of a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. For an image of discernment, the cloud is disconcerting. Contrary to the Wikipedia definition of discernment, clouds do not sharpen our perception. Driving on really foggy days means moving forward with little to no visibility. I caught a little bit early this morning. You see only the road that's immediately in front of you, and you keep on driving not with certainty, but in the hope that there will be more road down the way. For God to lead the people through the wilderness in the form of a cloud means that they were being led by something they could not see through, but that was obscuring their line of sight. It did not lead them by a quick, direct route either, but by a roundabout way, through twists and turns, sometimes going backwards and in circles, taking away all sense of direction, making them lose their bearings. The cloud was leading them, was leading them, but by what road and through what trials, they did not know. It was a cloud of unknowing, as the mystics would come to call it. A cloud of unknowing. A cloud of not knowing. We hate that cloud. We hate not knowing. Not knowing how something is going to turn out can be worse than knowing it's going to turn out bad. Sometimes we can cope better with bad, but not knowing just leaves us in that place of suspense where we don't know what to do or how we're supposed to feel. Not knowing what test results are going to reveal. Not knowing when the doctor is going to call. Not knowing what the future holds. Not knowing what the next steps are. Or if we're even on the right path. When, we're, when we don't know where we're going and we're looking for God to lead us, we want God to shine a light and clear it all up. But so often in Scripture, God appears not with a light to show the way, but in a cloud. The cloud in the wilderness, 
the cloud on Mount Sinai, the cloud that fills the temple, the cloud that descends on the mountain of transfiguration and surrounds Jesus and his disciples. These cloudy places of intense encounter with God's presence are not places of clear vision, but they are places of transformation. When Moses enters the cloud on Mount Sinai, he comes out with face shining so bright that people make him cover it up. The cloud leading the people through the wilderness transforms them into a completely new people. By the end of the journey, a generation has passed away, and they are literally a different people than they were at the start. They were transformed by that journey in the wilderness. But gosh, do you think if the people could see through that cloud and know where the journey would lead them, do you think they would have gone for it? (laughs) No. I mean, who would? And they were trying to go back to Egypt at every turn anyway, and not for bad reason. Running out of food and water in the desert certainly does make you question if your leadership knows what it's doing or if God has your best interests at heart. Were there no graves in Egypt that you had to lead us out here to die, they ask? The wilderness is where we say and do terrible things, where we worship golden calves, turn on each other, and question whether God is really with us. The wilderness is a place of testing, and that's what makes it a place of discernment. It's where the people of God are led by a cloud that does not answer all or even most of their questions. But it's only in that place where certainty gives way that trust becomes possible. The cloud of unknowing puts us in a place where we have to follow without knowing where the path will lead, where we take the next step, not because we know it's the right one, but because we trust it will be. So one afternoon, while I was at Luther Ridge, I decided to go on a hike. My Episcopalian friends told me there was a pretty lake somewhere, and that the way to get there was to follow a path that was marked with white crosses painted on trees. So off I go, looking for solitude at this lake. And here's what I find out immediately about this path. It's not clear. Winding through the woods, it's covered with leaves. I might see a clearing among the trees here and there, but never a clearly defined path. So I'd look for the sign of the cross to find my way. And here's what I find about these crosses. I could never see more than one at a time. They were spaced just far enough apart that in between I'd have to make a conscious decision to take a risk and trust I was still on the right path. I'd see one and know I was going the right way, then I wouldn't see any for a while, and I'd begin to wonder. Sometimes I'd look behind me, see if I could see a cross marking the path going the other way to make sure I was still headed the right way. And then just when I'd come to terms with the fact that I may or may not still be on the right path, but I was gonna take the risk and keep on moving, there would be another cross assuring me I was still on the path. Sometimes there'd even be a fork in the road, and I had to make a decision about which way to go 
knowing it might be the wrong way. And I would have to accept I might be making a mistake, and then I would turn around and go back the other way. And again, living just long enough with the choice to where it was a true risk, then the cross would appear. This is a different kind of trust, incidentally, than the trust I used on Friday afternoon when I took my first trip to Dollywood and getting strapped into a roller coaster. That kind of trust is a decision you only have to make one time. (laughs) This is a decision of trust you have to keep making over and over and constantly. Maybe less thrilling, but it's harder. So I'm winding my way through the woods, totally uh, unsure of how far away this lake is, beginning to wonder if there really is a lake, or if my new Episcopalian friends have just sent me on a journey of penance for being a Presbyterian. (laughs) But then the path steepens, and I come out into a clearing. And it's not a lake I see, but a chapel. And I'm thinking, this is not what I came here for. (laughs) I'm looking for communion with God in the great outdoors, not between four walls. But I'm curious, and so I go inside. It's a beautiful space, and I'm alone in there long enough to start inspecting everything. You might not know this about pastors, but we are curious about worship spaces. So I'm looking at the way it's arranged. I see what page the Bible's opened up to sitting on the pulpit. It was Jeremiah 4, if you're interested. And then a woman comes in, and she walks right up to me. And again, I'm thinking, this is not what I came here for. I wanted solitude, but I can see pretty quickly that she is distraught. She needs something. Turns out she's having trouble with her phone. Of course, this was before my phone developed its own technological issues. Could have said, I'm not the one you're looking for. She tells me that she is waiting for an important call, and that out of nowhere, this really upbeat Irish music starts playing on her phone, and she can't turn it off. So I take a look, and as I turn it off for her, she tells me that her mother, who was Irish, has passed away recently. So she was receiving this music as a gift from her mother to be joyful. And I say, oh, what a great blessing. But then she starts to cry. It's not a joyful day, she says. Her daughter on the other side of the country, was in the middle of a miscarriage. Her daughter, who's been trying to have another baby for six years, who has a seven-year-old boy who's been talking about how excited he is to have a sister, is making plans for a life he will share with her. I am standing with her as her world seems to be collapsing in chaos, in turmoil, and all I can do is bear witness. I say something, but what's important is that I stand there with her. She hugs me, and we we hold that space of loss together. After a moment, she seems lighter, and she lets go. And as she turns to leave, I hear her let out a shaky, thank you, God. And I realize I I was God's body. I, I was the body of Christ in that moment for her. 
I was the body she could hold on to and cry into. Because in the midst of her trial, I testified to God's love for her. She leaves. And as I'm standing alone again in that chapel, I can't help but wonder what kind of cloud led me by a path I didn't know to a place I didn't intend to go to be a minister to a person in need. We all have different wildernesses. We're all facing different kinds of earth-shaking trials as individuals, as families, as a church, as a nation. We all have a lot of discerning about what to do, what gifts we have to give, and what role we'll play in the service of love. It's complicated. I don't want to oversimplify it. Of course, it's hard. The point of discernment is that it's not easy. It requires trust. What I want to say to you this morning is this. Trust and love. Trust and love. We might be in a place where we don't know where we're going, and we're asking God to show us the, the way. But if we are trusting God in following a path marked with crosses, and if we're doing good ministry in love for others, what else can we ask for? In the middle of the trial, if we are trusting God and loving others, I think Jesus has given us just what we need to bring us through. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.